0: It's Friday afternoon. We've locked the door so no one will interrupt us while we attempt to inject disinfectant and UV radiation directly into our lungs, and also because it's time for another edition of our weekly podcast, Tales from the Brown Desk. I'm Jake Rigney of Rigney Law, LLC. With me, as usual, is my law partner, wife, and the mother of our homeschooled demon child, Cassie Rigney. Our host is Terry Ulm. Friendly Reminder. Tales from the Brown Desk is a free-flowing conversation involving two foul-mouthed attorneys. It may include graphic descriptions of sexual activity, violence, and attempted goose homicide. It may not be suitable for children, my mother, your mother, Mother Superior, the mother of dragons, and mother truckers, or the drive-by truckers. Listener discretion is advised. Here's Terry.
1: Hello, everyone. Hi, Jake.
0: Hi, Terry. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: I am full of cheeseburger. Nice. Yeah, it was good.
1: How are you, Cassie? I'm fine, thank you. So today's episode is going to be focused on parole and probation. Now, probation and parole caseloads have increased as prisons and jails look to reduce overcrowding during the coronavirus. Numerous entities like the ACLU and the National Lawyers Guild have reached out to Governor Holcomb pleading for the release of low-level offenders, inmates who are close to the end of their sentences, and those who are at high risk of becoming seriously ill or dying of COVID-19. Holcomb has allowed the Indiana Department of Corrections to manage itself. What do you guys think about this?
2: About the self-management? About the request to the governor? Which...
1: About the self-management, about the it being pushed to the local levels for the local levels to decide.
2: I think that um, being more individualized is better uh, rather than a big structure that paints every case with a broad stroke. Um, you want your case to be evaluated individually um, and you know at the local levels probably the best way to do that back in your home jurisdiction.
1: County jails are releasing dozens sometimes hundreds of inmates to reduce the threat of COVID-19 but this has not prevented COVID-19 from spreading in some facilities like the facility up in northwest Indiana Westville facility where nearly 92% of the inmates have tested positive for COVID-19 and numerous of the staff members there have too. In fact, the Indiana National Guard was just deployed to the facility to help staff deal with this issue. So do you think Indiana's local um, facilities are dealing with this pandemic well?
0: Well, look, I don't know about well. Um, it it's going to be nearly impossible to deal with no matter uh, what you do. Um, You can't stop sending employees to the jail, right? Or to the prison to watch the inmates. Uh, You can't suddenly make inmates uh, stay six feet apart from each other when there's not enough space in there to do that with any sort of reasonable, uh, in any sort of reasonable way. Um, And, someone, an asymptomatic person is eventually going to end up there, whether it's a, uh, a guard or a cafeteria worker or an inmate who just got sent there from a County jail where he got it. So, um, it, it is literally impossible to keep out and it is almost impossible to keep it from spreading once it gets there. Um, now it would be a different story if our testing situation was a little different. If we had the ability to test people within, You know, and get results within minutes or a couple of hours, you could test everyone coming in and out uh, every day. That would also be obviously very expensive. Um, And, you know, the the state's not going to try to spend that kind of money just on keeping a a disease out of the prison that's not going to kill too many people. Um, The the prison is a really difficult place to live, and it's not going to get any easier with COVID 19 but um, there's a, a pretty strong undercurrent. I'd say more among conservative voters than among liberals um, that says, so what? You shouldn't have gone to prison. Um, and I think that they feel that way. You know, They probably feel that way about this too. Um, it's unfortunate, but I think that those types of voters have sway with liberals, uh, you know, the politicians who make these decisions. And so um you're probably not going to see things improve too much. It is good that they've been letting more people out of um you know out of the county jails, although it it's frustrating that they have a bunch of people in the county jails that they can just say, Oh, well now that you've got a, a respiratory disease that's very infectious never mind, we don't need to keep you in jail. Like, the truth is, they didn't need to keep that guy in jail anyway. (laughs) Right. Um, So that's, I mean, that's a little frustrating, but I guess, um, you know, you take take the release for whatever reason you get it, I guess.
1: So with probation and parole caseloads on the rise due to trying to reduce the crowded prison and jail populations, Let's talk about probation and parole for a minute. Can you define probation and parole and tell the listeners what the difference is?
2: Probation is part of your sentence and parole is in addition to it afterwards. Um, like when you go into your sentencing hearing, you will know how much probation you're going to get. You're not going to be told how much parole you're going to get. Um, parole doesn't count towards your serving of your sentence. Um, like probation does.
1: So what are some common probation rules that are be put upon a person?
2: Standard terms and conditions, often you're going to have to, you know, don't commit any new crimes, uh, show up to your appointments. They usually include random drug testing. Sometimes they have curfews. Uh, sometimes they have limits on, you know, alcohol use.
1: Community service.
2: That's case by case. I mean, sometimes. it it, it that I wouldn't consider that a standard term. I mean, it's not unusual, but um, it's not like default, you get community service, where I feel like default is your probation includes your, your random drug testing. Um, it certainly can be part of it, but.
1: Who's eligible for probation or what type of offenders would get probation?
2: Anyone can
0: get probation as part of a criminal sentence. Um, Even a C misdemeanor, any misdemeanor, you can get up to a year of probation, Um, and it can be attached to a suspended sentence on any type of felony. Um, There are some felonies that carry mandatory minimum sentences, um, And in that case, if you only got the mandatory minimum, you wouldn't get probation afterward, although you probably would get parole. Um, But oftentimes, if there's any type of suspended sentence, um, you'll get probation as part of that suspended sentence. Um, So really, on any case, you can end up with probation. Sometimes you get it after you serve prison time or home detention time or something like that. So you know, even with a murder case, you could get 50 years in prison followed by five years suspended on probation or something like that. That um, that happens sometimes.
1: Is there a general length someone is on probation or is that dependent upon the crime the person committed?
2: There's no set term of probation. You know, if it's a misdemeanor, it's going to be a shorter term than a felony. Um, the potential length of the sentence of the underlying crime can kind of be controlling for that, but there's, I mean, there's no set term. It's not, if you're convicted of this, you get this much probation. It's not.
0: Yeah. Really the only limitation on it is that you can't get a longer probation sentence than you have, uh, a total sentence, uh, than, than the available total sentence. So, um, for example, except for on misdemeanors. So, For example, with a level six felony, if you got um, the maximum sentence on a level six felony is two and a half years. So they cannot give you more than two and a half years of probation. Um, Typically they don't. Typically they give you less in Indianapolis for that. But um, if they wanted to give you the maximum amount on probation, it'd be two and a half years.
1: So what happens to someone when they're They're on probation and they violate some of the rules.
0: You hear that? The sirens, they're playing our song, Cassie.
2: (laughs) Anything can happen to an informal resolution between the person and the probation department that never goes to the court. They could file a violation in court and you could have to go to court. Then in that situation, it's still anything to you could be continued on probation as before. They can increase uh, monitoring requirements or they can violate you and send you and take you into custody.
1: So what would be the worst case scenario for somebody who violated their probation?
2: They go to jail for all of their backup time.
1: No good time credit.
2: Well, if you violated, <laughs> what do you get good time credit for? I mean, you don't just get it for getting it. I you,
0: mean. yeah. So you gotta, to put it in context, you have to understand how criminal sentences work. Um, when, when you receive a sentence in, in a criminal case, uh, it's divided into two portions. One portion is the executed portion, which is the portion you serve immediately. And the other part is a suspended sentence that you can be made to serve later if you violate your probation. So uh, if you're placed on probation and you have one year suspended, um, suspended time is is what sort of we colloquially call backup time. Um, So if you have one year of backup time and you violate your probation, the judge can give you anything between uh, a stern talking to and one year in, in jail or prison, depending on, what kind of offense you committed. You do earn good time credit against that executed sentence if it gets imposed. So if the judge converts your suspended sentence into an executed sentence, you do get good time credit while you're serving it at the same rate that you would if you were serving it originally. So misdemeanor or a level six felony, you get a day for every day of credit Um, If it's a a major felony, a level five felony or higher, uh, you get a day for every three days that you serve. So you serve 75% of it roughly on a major felony case. You do still have the opportunity to get time cuts, but that's generally how the credit time works in that scenario.
2: Yeah, yeah. When you're serving, you're not earning good time credit on your probation sentence. So you you could go to the end and of your probation and violate, and you can't be like, well, I have good time credit on probation. You don't have. There's not any time for you to send me back, and that's not true. So I guess I was unclear, but you you're not earning good time credit for serving time on probation.
0: Right. You're not earning any credit when you're on probation. Probation is not an executed sentence. You don't get credit time for it. If you get one year of probation, you have to do one year of probation. Um, your benefit for being good on probation is not that they cut your time. It's that you don't have to do any of that suspended time that they threaten you with.
1: Can probation officers arrest somebody, or is that just reserved for cops to do?
0: I, I believe that they can. By statute, I do not believe that practice is common. Um, typically, when a probation officer is involved in in some sort of apprehension, it's it's likely that there's a police officer there with handcuffs that's actually doing the uh, the work. But I think they are defined as law enforcement officers in the statute. Which means they probably could if they really if they felt like they could follow the statute, but most likely, most probation offices have a very clear understanding that that's not an appropriate way for them to act, and that usually they're going to want to leave that to the professionals because arresting somebody is dangerous it's uh not something to be taken you know lightly
2: and just because you felt like it.
1: Could a probation violation result in a warrant for an arrest?
2: Yes. Um, generally, that's if they take, if if the violation is brought to the court, a, the a, an alleged viol- notice of violation is filed. And then the state uh, or the probation department will re- either request a warrant for their arrest or what's called a summons. And then the court can either just issue a summons, which is a subpoena to appear for court, order to appear, or they'll issue a warrant for your arrest.
1: What type of advice would you give to somebody who has a probation violation in a warrant for their arrest? Like, what should they do? Should they turn themselves in? Should they call an attorney?
0: It is generally, I think, a good idea to consult with an attorney, but um, sometimes the court will simply leave you no option other than to turn yourself in. Uh, So if you're going to, you know, you check with an attorney, there are certain types of cases in certain places where an attorney might be able to get it set up so that you don't have to go turn yourself in but sometimes that can't happen and you'd, you either have to turn yourself in or or you wait till you know, somebody with a badge and a gun finds you and um, sometimes that doesn't take very long sometimes it takes a really long time um, and you can put yourself in a worse situation when you do that though because a lot of times if you go in front of the judge and you have just turned yourself in because you knew there was a warrant. The judge looks at you and thinks, well, that's a person that isn't going to run. And, you know, then maybe they think you might be worth another chance. But if you're gone for a year and a half or two years and you knew there was a warrant out for your arrest and you didn't come back, well, then the judge is going to be thinking that's a person who's probably going to run away again and we're going to have to be dealing with this three years from now again. And I'd rather have this out of my courtroom. And so sometimes they're less likely to give you – Another chance um, in that situation.
1: Now, what happens to someone who moved out of the state of Indiana and there's a warrant for their arrest here for violating their probation and they're pulled over in some other state? Are they brought back here to Indiana or is that dependent upon their the crime they committed
2: anytime a warrant is issued it should show up in the national database and and any law enforcement officer that encounters you and knows about that warrant is supposed to take you into custody doesn't matter what it's for now the question is is indiana gonna bring you back you know and that depends you know is the marion county warrant they gonna bring you back you know a couple counties away yeah are they gonna bring you back a couple states away Maybe. It depends on what it is. Um, there's not a bright line rule. It's kind of case by case. And, you know, and then the jurisdiction has uh, something to say with that because the court's issuing a warrant. But I mean, you know, it's the sheriff's department that has to drive out there and get you. Um, so there's a lot of fa- a lot of factors that go into play. And but you could potentially. Yes, um, it, it depends.
1: So now we're going to move on to parole and can you explain to the listeners how parole works here in Indiana?
2: If you go to the Department of Corrections, you will either serve a term of probation or a term of parole after that sentence.
1: So if someone is in prison, parole is a given when before they get out that...
2: They will either get probation or parole. Parole is set up to make sure that the person getting out of custody has some kind of safety net to reintegrate into into the community. Now, they forgo the parole doing that if you have probation. But you have to do, you have to get something. Um, I've seen once in a while where they'll try and run cause some, some fences want parole anyway, and they'll either drop one or run them simultaneously, but that's a rare circumstance.
1: So in Indiana, do inmates appear before like a parole board or people that are going to ask them questions about life after prison?
2: they do now you only end up there ultimately if you've violated most of the time because you go to prison and the math problem it's your executed sentence minus credit time that'll give you your release date and that's called mandatory parole and you'll you'll get that and you'll get kicked out on parole without seeing the board once you reach that math problem then you see the board if you violate um and you don't admit the violation Um, but then even if you admit the violation you get annual reviews for anybody who's violated and then you will appear in front of the board every year for that review hearing
1: what kind of authority does the parole board have meaning like what type of conditions can they put on a person
2: They have a wide discretion. Their uh, limits on their power is that which is reasonably related to successful integration and not unduly restrictive of fundamental rights. So anything that is deemed reasonably related to this rehabilitation, um, and doesn't unduly burden rights they'll be allowed to do. And that's very broad. And I, I keep saying unduly burden. The statute is already saying they're going to burden your constitutional rights and they are allowed to do so. They just can't do it unduly. And then what is unduly? (laughs) So they've got a lot of discretion. I mean, it comes back down to this mentality. Well, default, you're supposed to be in prison. You don't like the rules of being out okay, you can go back to prison. The case law calls it the extension of prison walls. So, I mean, you know, I get a lot of people calling, I'm free, I did my time. If you're still on parole, you are still serving, you know, considered under their thumb, under their authority, you're, you know.
0: Yeah, one of the things that always strikes me about that statute and that that whole situation is we write this this statute, right? And it it's it's got a bunch of legal terms in it that no one coming out of prison understands and we put them back in prison if they don't abide by it. You know what I mean? Um, and so routinely we see people who come out and don't understand what that means and don't understand what, um, what they're allowed to do and what they aren't allowed to do. And then they're really unhappy when they find out that it is, uh, quite a bit difficult, um, to actually successfully complete parole sometimes and they put a lot of difficult, strange conditions on you sometimes, especially if you're a sex offender. Um, so it creates uh, this weird situation. and it's, it's a real problem. We write laws, we expect people to understand them, but we write them in a way that most people won't ever understand them.
1: So Cassie, you appear before the parole board, um, often representing inmates and people in prison. Can you give um, the listeners an example of a condition that might be unburdensome to somebody or burdensome? But
2: <laughs> this has not been considered unduly burdensome, but the most shocking uh, condition that I had heard of was for sex offenders who have to undergo polygraph testing. And, uh, the reason why, I mean, they're not just asking, you know, have you had contact with underage children? Have you had contact with the victim? They go into, um, the content of mass masturbatory fantasies, um, under, yeah. So, I mean, they're, I mean, if you want to talk about mind police, you know, what were
1: you fantasizing when you were jerking off that, that seems really intrusive. Wow. Are ankle bracelets or ankle monitoring systems part of parole and probation?
0: Uh, They can be part of, I think, either one. Um, They're not terribly common as a condition of probation, um, mainly because it's also an executed sentence. And so if you're going to put somebody on home detention as a condition of their probation, uh, you might as well just put them on home detention. Um, you know there's no reason to have probation involved with it at that point, um, but it does happen sometimes, um, which is weird because it's it's good enough to be an executed sentence, although technically you're not serving an executed sentence, um, which is why the Court of Appeals has said if you do that to somebody, if the state does that to someone while they're on probation and it's a condition of their probation, if they ever have if they're ever found to have violated their probation they get credit for all that time they were on home detention. So you can earn credit time for it even if you're not serving an executed sentence, um, which, again, is sort of a peculiar way to to handle it. But uh, that type of monitoring can occasionally be part of a, uh, a probation term, yeah.
1: So there is a statistic that I found interesting um, specifically because it's about Indianapolis – Did you know that Indianapolis has the nation's largest electronic monitoring program? And just to give you an example of how large it is, um, there are approximately a little over 4,000 people in Indianapolis monitored daily on these systems. And if you compare that to Cook County in Illinois, where Chicago sits, there are 2,700 on average people being monitored daily. Why do you think there are so many more People on ankle bracelets or ankle monitors in Indianapolis. Why are we using that more than the m- most of the nation?
2: I'd expect Marion County relies on it because of the federal inmate cap that has been in place since the mid aughts. Um, we have not expanded the jail <laughs> since that cap was in put in place. So, I mean, they, they, they aren't real is stopping to arrest people or sentence people, but they don't have any other way to, they don't have enough room to house them. And they were sued federally at one point for um, overcrowding.
0: Yeah. And, um, it, I think it's an attractive option for judges because they know they can't hold everyone. Um, but at least that way, if something bad happens down the road, the judge can say they tried, right. They, they used an option that was available to them. Um, which is better than just saying, you know, we released him, right? They could say, well, we put him on home detention. He wasn't supposed to be out of his house. Um, it, it assists a little bit in sort of what I call the um, the politics of confusion. Um, there are opportunities. Well, I guess the easiest way to explain it is sometimes something really bad happens, right? Like a guy is out on home detention and he commits a murder or – does some other really bad thing. Um, And it's happened many times in Indianapolis. Uh, I've been involved in a few of those cases myself. Um, And inevitably the media starts asking questions, usually related to like, why was this person out of custody? You know what I mean? Why didn't we prevent this from happening? Um, And then... They start asking, you know, everyone that's in, been involved in the decision starts uh, pointing the finger at each other about it, right? Uh, the prosecutor can say, well, the judge let her out. We didn't let him out. We didn't agree to that, um, which is why the prosecutor's office usually objects to every bond request so that they can come back later and say, well, we didn't agree to it, <laughs> <laughs> Um Because they know if you know if a thousand people or ten thousand people ask for bond reviews, one of them, at least one of them, is going to go do something bad afterward. So if they just object to all of them, then they can whichever one it is, they can come back and say, "Well, we objected. We didn't want them out." Um, And then the judges can either point back at the prosecutor's office, or um, at the jail, or at the you know wherever else they can to complain about how we don't have enough beds. Um, or they, or somebody else created a procedure and they were just following it. Um, and so at the end of the day, you never get a really good answer, no matter how many times the media asks about why this happened. Um, and it's because, you know, there's three or four or five different people and they can all kind of point at each other and say, um, you know, not me, them um if if the judge puts him on home detention then the judge can say i put him on home detention and community corrections didn't tell me when he ran away (laughs) um you know what i mean why didn't they tell me i would have issued a warrant for it like so it's it, it creates this situation where everyone can just point at somebody else within the system no one eventually sort of catches the the worst of it and um uh, the public just kind of eventually, you know, it, the, the new cycle moves on and the public finds something else to be, uh, mildly outraged about. Um, it's an aspect of the criminal justice system that a lot of people don't talk about. And a lot of people might even disagree with me about it, but I, I've noticed it for a long time back, back when I was a prosecutor back in the aughts and, um, invented my own little term for it. It's sort of the the politics of confusion. They're just, you can always find somebody else to blame, um, or at least to divert attention away from yourself for. And that's a tool in, in that, um, in that process, even if, even if no one will admit it is, or if they, they don't want to say that that's why they do it. Um, but I think sometimes that is, that is why look, I could be wrong. I'm just stating my opinion, but, um, I I think it's a real thing, and I've been involved in enough decisions uh, about whether or not to object from back when I was a prosecutor that I can say it's uh, a real thing that prosecutors think about.
1: Now, do you know if ankle monitors are only used after sentencing, after you get out of jail, or are they ever used um, prior to sentencing? Like, are they put on people that have not had their case heard yet
2: oh yeah yeah i mean that's you put it on as but you can have those kind of monitoring as part of your bond Um, and i would expect a substantial portion of that four thousand is those people
1: i find that interesting because i thought that the whole purpose of bond was to ensure that that person was going to come back so they are taking like an extra precaution
0: right so and, and what they usually do is the or the way they would justify it um is by saying that uh they've they've lowered the bond right so they've made it easier for you to get out in return for you being on home detention um you know so you could have a a ten thousand dollar cash bond uh with no home detention or a five hundred dollar cash bond with home detention your choice. And uh, most people don't have 10,000. Most people do have 500. You can guess which one they
1: choose. Right.
2: Well, and it's not only to ensure bond is not only to ensure appearance. That is definitely one of the things, but it's also to protect the community. You know, if you have somebody who's a habitual drunk driver, they might be put on a scam bracelet during the penitency of their case to make sure they're not drinking. And the justification there being is to protect the community. (laughs)
1: Uh, one of the things I ran across um, when preparing for this podcast was the technology that's behind these ankle bracelets. Like I read somewhere that some of them can actually hear you, like they're listening. Do you know if that's the case here in Indianapolis, if they're monitoring some people or if they can call you on them?
0: I, I think that's accurate. And I think that they can. Having never been on home detention, I, I'm not up on the latest model. Um, but i I do believe I've had conversations with with people in the past where they said they talked to their officer through their through their bracelet which means they have a microphone and a speaker um, and if that's the case then they could be recording you um, I do think it's on like one of the sheets you you sign when you sign up for the program too I think um, but you know there's Those individual monitors don't last very long, and so they're always replacing them with different models. I don't know what they're currently doing, if they're currently doing that or if they have the ability to, but uh, I think they have in the past.
1: And I read somewhere that some of these monitors can actually determine if you had any alcohol. Is that true? Like they can measure the... The sweat from your body, and be able to tell.
2: I believe that's the scram bracelet, and yes, yes, it's, it's exactly as you describe.
1: So, I'm assuming that the cost for some of these ankle bracelets is probably relatively high. Whose burden is it to pay that cost? Is it the offenders? Is it the taxpayer?
0: No, it's it's the offenders. Although I do think that the program is probably subsidized by the uh, taxpayers. They it's in indiana um they are typically run the home detention and work release programs are typically run by uh community corrections it is a county office that's created in every county in indiana so every county has one and uh they their job is to monitor people so it is a taxpayer created and funded program but they take great pride in um, using or making the offenders pay for the system. That's one of the ways they promote it, right? That's one of the ways they talk everyone into thinking it's a good idea. Like, we'll put them on home detention, and then he has to pay for it instead of the taxpayers. Um, and there are substantial fees attached to it that people are forced to pay sometimes. And it's um, it can be uh, really difficult to pay for. Um, i think the the fees if if they don't knock them down for you the fees are something like twelve or thirteen or fourteen dollars a day, which is like over four hundred dollars a month wow um, yeah i I used to have a uh a, a sports car a mazda r x eight and the payment wasn't that high <laughs> per month so it's uh it's a whole sports car you're you're buying there every month on your ankle
1: so then that would make sense why earlier this year Florida man He was arrested for stealing drills and batteries and other things to pay for his ankle monitoring fee.
2: Oh, Florida, man. And (laughs) I can hear his consult with an attorney now about how it is not his fault and that it's the state's fault because they racked him with its bill. (laughs) I've heard this defense before. They set me up to fail, man. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they did. They sure did, Chad.
1: Yeah, if it's $400 a month, that's definitely... Like, I don't know how people can afford that. Like, especially if you're coming out of jail or out of prison and have to rebuild your life and then just pay to live and that too.
0: Yeah, so they are supposed to do an indigency review to determine how much you can actually afford to pay every month. And it is... uh, But it is that is sort of... I'm struggling to figure out a polite way to say this that is not uniform in its application <laughs> um so some places uh i think find a lot of people indigent and some places almost won't find anyone indigent or just won't put anyone indigent on it um which creates other serious issues but um you know about how you treat rich people versus poor people in the system um, but uh, you know, our system is never designed to be perfect anyway. So uh, if, if that's what you come out of it wanting, you're always going to be disappointed.
1: So did you hear that Florida man was arrested this week um, after being after the cops were called um, due to a domestic violence call? They were called to a residence. Um, the woman told them that Florida man hid his gun uh, in the car. So the cops proceed to search the car, and they find a gun and a bulletproof vest. And Florida man says that they were not his. They were John Wick's. <laughs> his cousin, John Wick. <laughs> his
0: cousin, John Wick. Um, did did the police just sort of put everything back and leave?
1: <laughs> no. Because that's what I would have done. I'd have been like, well
0: done, sir. <laughs> If there's a 0.1% chance he's telling the truth, I'm going to die. So time to leave.
1: No, he was arrested for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon and domestic battery.
0: (laughs) Good try, Florida man. Points for creativity.
1: And that wraps up this episode of Tales from the Brown Desk.
0: Thank you, Terry. We appreciate it. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Brown Desk. Please note, while we may discuss legal issues and provide information regarding the law to our listeners, we do not intend to create an attorney-client relationship with any listener. Our advice may not be applicable to some legal issues. Please consult with an attorney you've hired to review your legal situation before you attempt to apply the things we have said to your case. If you'd like to schedule a free consultation with one of us regarding a criminal law matter, please call us at 317-430-7370. If you'd like to submit a question for our podcast, please send an email to teri at rigneylawindy.com. Please title your email, Podcast Question. No names are necessary. The attorneys at Rigney Law do not comment on their current pending cases. Nothing we have said in this podcast is a comment on a case we are currently working on even if your name is Chad or if you're from Florida. Thanks, everyone.